Uh, the Cobain 50. Nirvana. Kurt Cobain's Top 50 Albums. Nirvana. From listener-powered KEXP. From the muddy banks of the Sailor Sea, this is the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP. I'm Martin Douglas. And I'm Dusty Henry. This week, we're diving into the album Surfer Rosa by the Pixies, which dropped in 1988. Another very foundational album for the current world of music. And actually, you are the person who wrote this segment. So, um, yeah, tell me a little about what you found from the Pixies. Yeah, I think one of my biggest takeaways as I dug in further was this album didn't come out in the 90s, but I think it might be the most influential album onto the 90s. Like we talked about Raw Power, that being a template. I feel like this is one of those like template albums that like so many people pulled from. We're going to get into all that, but I'm really excited about it. I'm also really excited because we have Albina Cabrera, our good friend and colleague, host of the El Senito podcast. She's going to be jumping in on the episode as well to talk about some of the Latin music influence on the record and how the record has influenced Latin music as well. Without further ado, this is Dusty Henry on Surfer Rosa by the Pixies. Frenzied guitars, an unmistakable manic voice, catchy hooks lathered in distortion, Dynamics that jump from quiet to loud to quiet again. Yes, of course, I'm talking about the Pixies. Before he'd become known as Black Francis or Frank Black, the future Pixie singer was known by his longer birth name, Charles Michael Kittred Thompson IV. Music was entrenched in his life from early on, steeped in 60s folk records. His mother remarried when he was 12 years old and joined a Pentecostal church. This had an enormous impact on young Thompson, who would end up weaving Christian imagery into his songwriting. He was also heavily influenced by Christian rocker Larry Norman, Norman's song, Watch What You're Doing, inspired the name of the Pixies' first EP, Come On Pilgrim. It was also around this time that Thompson began playing guitar. He'd remained blissfully unaware of punk rock until high school. But once he did eventually eat of the fruit, so to speak, These foundations of folk and religious music, mixed with the raw, unfiltered spirit of punk rock, became a powerful combination. It led him to write songs like Here Comes Your Man when he was just 14 or 15, a song he'd shelve until much later. While enrolled at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Thompson quickly befriended another student and musician, Joey Santiago. Santiago was born in Manila, Philippines. His family left the country in 1972 when President Ferdinand Marcos declared the country to be under martial law. Immigrating first to New York, Santiago's family eventually settled in Massachusetts. At nine years old, he took a classical guitar his brother was using for decoration on his wall and started to learn the instrument. The first song he learned to play was the Velvet Underground's Rock and Roll, 
I know. How cool is that? Back at college, Santiago and Thompson became roommates, shared music, jammed, and went to see punk bands like Black Flag. In their sophomore year, Thompson enrolled in an exchange program to San Juan, Puerto Rico, which left a lasting impression on him. At the end of the trip, he decided to abandon school and gave himself two options. Go to New Zealand to see Haley's Comet, or go back home and start a band. He sent Santiago a letter pleading with him to start a band, saying, We gotta do it. Now is the time, Joe. The duo worked in a Boston warehouse for a year or so, writing songs on the side and plotting their next moves. Eventually, they put out an advertisement in the Boston Phoenix reading, Band seeks bassist into Husker Du and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Please, no chops. The only person who responded was Kim Deal. We'll learn a lot more about Deal and her twin sister Kelly later in the series when we talk about their other highly influential band, the breeders. At the time, Deal didn't know how to play bass guitar, nor did she bring one to the audition. So, naturally, she got the job. Her supposed lack of chops, whatever that means, became a crucial part of the band's sound, including her vocals. You could go as far as to say she was the secret ingredient to the band's early work juxtaposing Frank Black's feverish howls by sounding cool and unfazed by all the chaos around her. She'd also helped the band find their last missing piece. Deal's husband recommended his drummer friend, David Lovering. And just like that, they had a band. The Pixies quickly got to work on their debut EP, Come on, Pilgrim. Pilgrim came out in 1987 on 4AD Records. It was an artistic triumph for such a new band. The record was well-received in the United Kingdom and became critical darlings overseas. But Pilgrim wasn't able to get distribution in the United States. So many Americans didn't hear the record until it was packaged with the band's first proper album in 1988, Surfer Rosa. Coming off of Come On Pilgrim, the Pixies were eager to get back into the studio. Their label 4AD recommended they work with a new producer this time around, a guy by the name of Steve Albini. These days, Albini has a reputation as one of the most prolific and influential producers of underground music. He's produced over 1,500 albums, ranging from Songs Ohio and PJ Harvey to Joanna Newsom 
and slint. Back when he met the Pixies, though, he'd only just begun producing records, working with acts like Urge Overkill and Blatant Descent. In 1987, Albini might have been best known for his role as the leader of the band Big Black. Albini first met the Pixies at a dinner party, just weeks after Come On Pilgrim was released. They hit it off so well that they all head into the studio the very next day. Albini played a crucial role in the careers of both the Pixies and Nirvana. He also goes by a very strict code of ethics. He would be paid a fee and not collect royalties, a practice common in most industry deals. In a letter he later sent to Nirvana, he wrote, I would like to be paid like a plumber. I do the job and you pay me what it's worth. In the practicalities of recording, Albini prefers to record the band in the same room playing together with minimal overdubs. It's a big part of what makes Surfer Rosa sound the way that it does. Albini's mission is to capture the band as true as possible to how they sound in the room. It's his belief that, quote, 99% of the sound of a record should be established while the basic take is recorded. This means no remixing, no click tracks, and sticking to analog as much as possible. In other words, support the band, get out of the way, and let the musicians express themselves. Surferosa vindicates Albini's thoughtful, if not cantankerous, ideologies. They recorded the album in 10 days, though... Albini says they could have done it in less time if they weren't messing around so much. Surfer Rosa is the perfect complement to the band's songwriting that veers towards macabre imagery of broken bones, bone machines, and sexual deviancy. It's the Pixies' first masterpiece, and certainly not their last. And when I say masterpiece, by the way, I don't mean that it's pristine. In fact, what makes Surfer Rosa so brilliant is its raw nature. It's the point when we see the band really coining the patented loud, quiet, loud dynamics. Just take a listen to the Kim Deal-led single, Gigantic. It's a simple idea. Play your verse more subdued, more restrained, then explode at the chorus. This contrast has a huge effect. It makes the high moments feel especially huge and powerfully emotive, and vice versa is a powerful effect going from these massive choruses back down into a quieter verse. This is definitely one of the techniques that Nirvana lifted in their own songwriting. Cancer 
Surfer Rosa might not have been a commercial smash, but it thrilled indie rock fans across the globe. This album became a guiding light for artists with similarly legendary careers. Here's PJ Harvey talking about the record in the Pixies documentary, Gouge. It was completely new for me. That's why it was so exciting. It was absolutely no reference points at all that I could draw. So Ferosa would be my favorite because of the combination of Albini's production and their songs. You put the record on and it sounded like they were in the room with you, which was um, so exciting to hear. And here's Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead gawking about the album, also in the Gouge documentary. I just thought it was uh, the sexiest record I'd ever heard. And the way the drums sounded on that record. On the face of it, Surfer Rose is sort of, it's like a horror record. It's really, really, really violent. There's something desperate about the way Joey plays, where, where it's just, um, just striving to get something out of this instrument. Very very brutal and, and, and yet really original. And of course, there's Nirvana. Kurt was obviously a devout fan, owning up to the fact that his songwriting was indebted to the Pixies. Nirvana had already cemented themselves as icons with their instant classic sophomore album, Nevermind, in 1991. When it came to follow it up, the band went in a different direction. While Butch Vig's clean and polished production of Nevermind made them superstars, they craved a more raw sound. So they approached the producer of Surfer Rosa, the very same Steve Albini. Here's Nirvana's Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl talking about the influence of Surfer Rosa with Conan O'Brien in 2023. It must have been like 1989, 1990, and we were cruising in this van, and I think we were listening to Surfer Rosa. And then... and. Kurt was sitting there in the chair and he raises his finger and makes a decree. He goes, this shall be our snare sound. <laughs> <laughs> we had always um, listened to records that Steve had made. I remember mm-hmm. when I first moved in with Kurt, I think he only had like four records. It was like, well, he had, he had a Mark Lanigan record. Uh, there was Surfer Rosa. There was a Breeder's Pod and a Jesus Lizard record. And that was just the sound that we felt most um that we loved it's hard to stress how radical of a move this was for nirvana at the time it'd be like the beatles calling up jack and dino and trying to replicate the sound on bleach after the success of nevermind nirvana quickly became the biggest band in the world and yet they hired a producer who compared himself to a plumber nirvana knew exactly what they were doing You hear the spirit of Surfer Rosa right away on Nirvana's last record, In Utero. With Albini's guidance, the band implemented the same studio practices that the Pixie used when making their record. In Utero combines the rawness of Bleach with the songcraft of Nevermind. In my opinion, it's the fully realized version of Nirvana's sound. Kurt 
Kurt never hid his love of the Pixies. He openly said that Nirvana was more than indebted to the Pixies, including on their breakthrough hit, Smells Like Teen Spirit. In a 1994 interview with Rolling Stone's David Frick, Kurt said, quote, I was basically trying to rip off the Pixies. When I heard the Pixies for the first time, I connected with that band so heavily, I should have been in that band. Or at least in a Pixies cover band. In Michael Azarad's Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, the band openly worried about the song, saying, This really sounds like the Pixies. People are really going to nail us for this. Fast forward to 2013, Frank Black of the Pixies finally gave his take on the issue. His sarcastic response is, quote, Being original, influencing Nirvana so they could rip off a song. I'll admit it. If Kurt fessed up to it, fuck it. I'll agree with it. You ripped us off. Without the Pixies, there might not have been Nirvana. At least, not in the way that we know them. Throughout Surfer Rosa, you hear a lot of influence from Latin America. On songs like Vamos and Oh My Golly, Black Francis sings in Spanish with references to Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, thanks in large part to the exchange program I mentioned earlier. To dig deeper into these influences, I caught up with my friend Albina Cabrera, host of KXP's El Sonido radio show and podcast. How are you doing, Albina? Hi, Dusty. How are you? Excited to be here with you. Can you talk a little bit about the Spanish language on the album and a little bit about the inspiration on the record? He incorporates Puerto Rican slang and different themes, uh, such as puñeta and chévere. Uh, the presence of uh, PR, Puerto Rico, can be found in several songs of Sarferosa. In Where Is My Mind, there are mentions about swimming in the Caribbean Sea, which I recommend a lot. <laughs> and uh, you can also hear references to Piñones Beach, one of my favorite uh, beach in Puerto Rico. Here is the very interesting part because Pixie's connection to Puerto Rico is solid, is significant, but they have never performed there. And let me tell you that that is a completely missed opportunity considering that we have a huge garage rock, indie rock and punk rock music scene in Puerto Rico. So some local fans or artists, they sense a, a pride hearing their Iceland's references in Pixies music, but they also express this complex relationship because the bands uh, never played in Puerto Rico yet. Despite this, uh, the Iceland role in Pixies history deserves recognition because it played a crucial role in shaping this iconic album. So I think that there is a huge story here and uh, I'm excited to spread the word about this. <laughs> How 
How do you see the Pixies influencing the modern rock scene in Latin America? And also, do you think the band was inspired by Latin music at all on this record? Sí, total. Uh, it's interesting how every time that we talk about modern rock, I think that we have to go back to two different moments and factors that to me are closely related on a global scale. On one hand, we have to mention the boom of alternative rock in the 90s. But on the other hand, I want to mention MTV transforming this alternative movement into pop culture. And these are super linked because MTV helped the major rock movements of the last few decades become popular, like Nirvana, Pixies, Sony Youth, and others, but specifically Nirvana, uh, because they reached their the TVs of the kids like me who grew up in the 90s in Latin America. Latinos have a rock in their blood, and this impact continues today with new generations of young people and artists who still consider Pixies as a foundational influence, and Surfer Rosa specifically as a must-listen album. But I believe that the appeal of this sound lies in what Kurt Cobain explained it so well regarding the influence of Salva Rosa on his music. It's about this balance between like soft guitars and mantras, like super dreamy atmosphere's with the dirty and noisy distortions where you can emphasize more intention over virtuosity. It doesn't matter if you can play an instrument, grab a guitar and start your band. So I think that those kids and young adults became this new generation of bands of the early 2000s. And for my generation in Latin America, this it's like a new step after rock in tu idioma movement, rock in your language movement. It was a new musical style where you can see this like rebel rock and this atmosferas of Nirvana and Pixies, but they did it in their own language without trying to sing in English. Like that was something that happened a lot in Latin American rock during the 90s. So the impact was so organic and so profound that Latin American rock built its own lineage and codes that continue to this day. We'll hear more from Albina on the mutual influence between Kurt Cobain and Latin music on the El Sonido podcast. New episodes drop every month. Will Surfer Rosa, the Pixies created the template for a new wave of mutilation in punk and indie rock. Nirvana took that gritty sound to the masses, and the entire sphere of rock music fundamentally changed across the world. Surfer Rosa endures forever. And that was Dusty Henry surveying the landmark 1988 album Surfer Rosa by the Pixies. And yeah, Dusty, I wanted to hear your thoughts on when you first heard the Pixies, because, you know, I mean, we well, we might as well get into it. No obscuring here. I'm a few years older than you, so I have a different point of entry for the Pixies than you. So, yeah, like when did you first hear the Pixies? Oh, man, I feel like this is going to be like a <laughs> uncool answer. Like I, I heard the probably the first time I can remember hearing. the. Wait, Pixies. let me guess. I, yeah. I you said uncool. So I'm going to say I'm going to say Fight Club. Yep. The, exactly. Yep. <laughs> I gave it away. There. <laughs> 
It was a hundred percent Fight Club. Maybe I heard something before, but it's okay. I read the book when I was a teenager, so we're both we've got a little uncool thread going on there. Yeah, generational ties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the first place I remember hearing it. Um, which is kind of crazy too, because that song like wasn't a single, wasn't really like a hit or anything like that until that movie, which came out like what, like almost a decade. It was yeah, like late nineties, I think. I want to say like ninety eight, ninety nine. Fight Club came out, so yeah, it was. I mean, it's still fairly, fairly early. I mean, in terms of you know when you could have discovered the music, but also yeah, like it's still still a little bit of time. I think. That is also a thread that ties these albums together is that it kind of took a little time for the public to recognize its greatness. Yeah, absolutely. You could say that about In Utero as an example, too. But I, yeah, I think eventually I did get to Doolittle. That was kind of my, my big Pixies record for a long time. And I, I, I do still love that album. And eventually made my way to Surfer Rosa, I think through all the singles and things, but um, yeah, Surferosa, man, what a like a crazy, dark, raw album. It's funny because the thing that draws me the most to this album are the drum sounds. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think about how the 80s were full of these big, cavernous, reverb, stadium-style drums that to this day sound really dated and when i hear surferosa it sounds like the band is playing in a room rather than playing in a stadium and i think that lends itself well to the passage of time like this record sounds timeless shout out to steve albini because like this record sounds just as fresh today. That sounds like a cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway. This record sounds just as fresh today as it did when it came out in 1988. 100% agree. I was going to say the same thing. Like Steve Albini, like this is, I feel like this album is so much, almost as much his story as it is the Pixies. Like it's kind of his like big introduction to the world as a producer. And yeah, it's that commitment he has to like, be in the room together. My job's to get out of the way, make it sound like this is actually you all playing together. Uh, he, he's maybe my favorite rock producer, like of all time. Like he's such a curmudgeon, but like I kind of <laughs> love that too. Like, like it's I don't know. It's cool to be nice to everyone and everything, but like his just like no bullshit mentality goes from his like ethics to like the way he produces, and like this is like obviously a crowning achievement record. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I feel a lot of kinship with Steve Albini, not just in his crabbiness as a person, (laughs) but also in his approach to art and the fact that he wants to deliver the artist in its purest form, in its rawest form. And, you know, I can relate to that a lot. Totally. And that's why I feel like, I mean, we're going to get this multiple times in the series, but In Utero is like a top 10 album period for me. I'm so glad that Nirvana made a record with him, like in, in the short span of this band, because it's, to me, it's just like, we got to, we got to hear the band the way they were meant to be heard, like on In Utero and same with the Pixies as well. But like that to me is just a really special thing to have as a music fan. 
yeah, I hope we um, I hope we get to talk about in utero at length on this podcast because a yes, it is also one of my top ten albums ever, and b it's so radical that Nirvana became the biggest selling rock band of their generation. And for their major label follow-up, they go with Steve Albini. Like, it's so wild to me. Give me the guy who played on Slint's records. <laughs> Make another million dollars. <laughs> give me that Give me that big black guy. <laughs> also, yeah, not, I mean, you know, you know what I mean. Not, <laughs> not like big black guy, but, you know, that's for, I guess that would be for the Bad Brains episode. You're giving too many spoilers already. <laughs> This was the Kobe 50. Let me offer some shout outs from our team. Thanks to Roddy Nickpour for audio production on this piece. Our podcast manager is Isabel Khalili. Larry Mizell Jr. is our director of editorial. I'm your co-host, Martin Douglas. And I'm Dusty Henry. We'll see you next week in the Cobain 50 from Listener Power at KEXP, where the music matters. New wave of mutilation. Ah, stupid.